Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 23 for the third quarter of February 2012. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the fake story of Planet X, part 1, which is a play on episode 13, the true story of Planet X. Now, a lot has been made over the years about Planet X. Way too much to go into in a single episode, and since I'm counting this towards my series on 2012 Doomsday episodes, I'm going to specifically talk about the 3,600-year orbiting Planet X popularly known as Nibiru, or Marduk, and sometimes co-opted by some people to be known as Wormwood. Nancy Leader's Planet X, Planet X Approach from the South Pole, Gilbert Erickson's Planet X, all of those will be covered in future episodes. The concept of a 3,600-year orbiting planet is pretty much linked to the ideas promoted by the late Zechariah Sitchin, and that's a somewhat difficult name to spell. It's Z, or if you're in Canada, Z, E, C, H, A, R, I, A, Zechariah, and then Sitchin is S-I-T-C-H-I-N, Sitchin. His idea is that the translations of the ancient Babylonian and Sumerian tablets showed that the ancients knew of a twelfth planet that was known as Nibiru, or sometimes known as Marduk, and that aliens from this planet, among other things, created modern humans in order to use as a slave labor force to mine for gold so they could atomize it and put it in their atmosphere to prevent global warming. Humans apparently still maintain some of these remnant slave tendencies to these Nibiru leprechaun people because we still have a desire for gold, and gold is... Uh, Moving on, there are two things that I need to point out right away about this. First, even within Sitchin's own mythology, Nibiru is not going to return until something like 2186 or something like that. So people who claim that Sitchin is the one who said that it will be here in 2012 are misreading his misreadings. But this is actually fairly common among pseudosciences, And this is actually something that we talked about in the interview with the Mayan scholar, Dr. Normark, where people will take other people's ideas and just twist them, and then the pseudoscientists come out and yell at the other pseudoscientists. That's a different issue. So it's common among many pseudosciences and pseudoscientists that people will just take whatever they want from someone and finagle it to their own purpose. Now, another thing that bears pointing out here, and is important from a both skeptical and scientific point of view, is that Sitchin is the only person to ever translate the Sumerian tablets this way. No one else did. All archaeologists and all pseudo-archaeologists who worked on these tablets and cylinder seals and other things translate them to mean something completely different from what Sitchin gets. Now, I can't say that's proof that Sitchin was wrong, but it's a really, really big red flag. Ignoring the biological, archaeological, and historical problems with this scenario, from an astronomy context, we can look at the broader picture of Sitchin's claims relating to the planet Nibiru. 
This is purported to be a planet on a highly elliptical 3,600-year orbit that takes it close to Earth when it is closest to the Sun. Presumably, the planet is Earth-like because it has an ozone layer and it supports Anunnaki-type people thingies. So first off, one can use Kepler's second law of planetary motion to figure out the semi-major axis for this planet. Semi-major axis is if you take the major axis of an ellipse and chop it in half, that's a semi-major axis. If the orbital period of an object is expressed in Earth years, and the distance from the Sun is expressed in Earth-Sun distances, then Kepler's second law can be simply expressed as p squared equals a cubed, where p is the planet's period and a is the semi-major axis. Solving for a... A equals P to the two-thirds power. Putting in 3,600 for P, and we can calculate a distance of about 235 Earth-Sun distances. That's sort of the average distance of where this planet is from the Sun. That's really far, and that's over six times as far as Pluto gets from the Sun. It's actually very possible for an Earth-like object to exist that far away, but the temperatures on its surface would be ridiculously cold for any type of life to survive, at least that we know of, let alone evolve into something that's complex and humanoid-type thing. Barring that, we still have the standing question of whether this object could exist that spends most of its time far away, but for a few years out of every 3600, it comes through the inner solar system and relatively close to Earth. The answer to this lies in the stability of the asteroid belt. The asteroid belt is a confined system of hundreds of thousands of kilometer or larger sized objects that's generally found between Mars and Jupiter. The belt is very stable. Almost all of the millions of objects within it are on well-defined, fairly stable orbits that will last for a very long time. This is almost impossible if twice every 3,600 years, and what's going in and what's going out, a planet-sized object passes through either it or close by it. The gravitational disturbance caused by a planet-sized object would significantly disrupt the asteroid belt, causing collisions among its members and for it to be scattered over time. We would also probably see periodic, every 3,600 years, asteroid or meteor showers on Earth, and this really hasn't been recorded in any way. A way to visualize this, this effect of a gravitational disturbance, is to take a large bed and think of it as a tiny section of the asteroid belt. Now, place maybe a dozen small marbles randomly over the bed. This is actually much closer than they would be in the real asteroid belt if the marble sizes were to scale, but let's ignore that and continue on. Now take another marble and place it on one end of the bed and flick it across. It may hit another marble, but overall it's really not going to affect anything else. This is sort of like a comet passing through the asteroid belt. Now take a really heavy bowling ball, place it on one end of the bed, and push it to the other. You're going to see an effect on the marbles that are on the bed. Now this is an object that's only about a thousand times the mass of your original marble, whereas an Earth-like planet is at least a million times the mass of a comet. 4.5 billion years into the solar system's lifetime, the asteroid belt would really not exist anymore if it had seen a rogue elliptical planet pass through it so frequently.
Another way to look at this is the historic record. After all, if Nibiru, or whatever you want to call it, is an object that's on a 3,600-year orbit, and it brings itself close to Earth every 3,600 years, then it must have come by as recently as 1600 BCE. Some claim it happened in 705 BCE. See the episode on the geographic pole shift. This is where we have an inherent contradiction within the 2012 mythos. Most conspiracy theorists, doomsday people, and whatever place a huge emphasis on the skill of ancient civilizations to make astronomical observations that are supposedly much more sophisticated and better than we can do today. The Mayans had their amazing calendar system and knew all about Venus's orbit, and the Chinese have the oldest records of comets, and the Egyptians and the Greeks were dominating the Middle East, and all of these civilizations had writing, culture, science, and apparently really, really good understanding of astronomy. Some people even say they understood string theory. That's a different episode. And yet, we're asked to believe that all of these ancient civilizations missed a planet that came close to Earth. Not an asteroid streaking by, for which many records exist, not a comet appearing, for which many records exist, not a brief supernova, for which many records exist, but a giant Earth-like planet that was clearly visible in the sky. These civilizations could observe Saturn's motion through the sky, and yet they made no big, big record of Nibiru. I find that difficult to believe. So when you get right down to it, this is a story that sounds nice and interesting on its surface, and if you want to think of it as science fiction, sure, you could write an interesting science fiction story. But people consider it science fact, and when you look at it just a little bit, delve below the surface, and see if it makes sense historically or physically, then this 3,600-year orbiting planet X disappears in a puff of red dust. This week's question for Q&A comes from Matt from Connecticut in the USA, who asks, You mentioned that the planets would be perturbed by an approaching brown dwarf. I've mentioned this myself in replies to conspiracy theorists about Nibiru and Planet X, and so far the conspiracy theorists have always been too dim to ask the next logical question. Who is tracking the planets that would allow any perturbations to be detected? My prolonged and varied search has not been able to answer this question. Any help would be appreciated. Well, since I like to be appreciated, I answered Matt's question. The answer is that professional astronomers and space agencies don't really track planets. They assume they're going to be where they're going to be. If they weren't there, then when we send spacecraft, they wouldn't get to the planet. We also use software that figures out where the planets will be and points our telescopes to that location in the sky. It's really more the amateur astronomy community that does this kind of work. Not tracks the planets per se, trying to figure out if they're being perturbed, but they watch for what are called occultations. This is where something like a star passes behind a planet. Such occultations are tabulated months in advance, and I've linked to two sources in the show notes, and they require the planets to be exactly where predicted for them to happen, exactly when they're scheduled to happen from your location on Earth. In fact, 
if the planets were being shuffled around by an unseen planet X, then these occultations would not happen exactly when planned, and systematic offsets would be reported, and we would know about them. We also observe occultations for asteroids, and this is an important way to figure out the sizes and shapes of asteroids. And you can actually build up an asteroid profile because from a different location on Earth, the star will pass behind a slightly different location on the asteroid. And so you can build up a really cool shape type profile. So that wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, although it's probably easiest just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. In terms of feedback from last episode's topic on the geographic pole shift, part two, Mike R. from the great frozen tundric north says, Regarding episode 22, in what way is Canada a depressing country? I certainly hope that you have the data to back up your claim. I've recently discovered your podcast and found it to be fair, balanced, and until today, apparently scrupulous in its dedication to empiricism. State your sources, Yankee swine. Now, I want to make sure that everyone realizes that I badmouth Canada all in jest. I'm sure it's a wonderful place to live, and one that I'll be happy to explore should Rick Santorum or Newt Gingrich be voted in as President of the United States later this year. Now, related to an older episode, I have one more piece of feedback from episode 19 on John Lear. A man by the pseudonym of Desert Fox writes in, I do not believe the idea has any merit, but I have an astronomy book from prior to the confirmation of plate tectonics. In the book, the idea of the moon coming from the Pacific Ocean Basin was brought forward as a possible, but not likely, explanation. Unfortunately, I do not have the book anymore, so cannot give you a reference to look for. Cannot even remember the title because it's been about 25 to 30 years since I last read it. I just wanted to bring it up because apparently it was a real hypothesis at one time. If the person is older, 60s or so, it could have been something that they learned in school. And my response to Desert Fox is that it's true. This was one of the ideas way, way back when of how the moon may have formed, but John Lear claiming that that's how it happened in 2007 or whenever the clip was recorded that I played is sort of like me saying that today, the way to lower a fever is by trepanning. It's anachronistic. And no, I've not been using one of those words of the day tear-off calendars. A final piece of feedback is general to the show. During many shows, such as today's Q&A, I'll sometimes say things like, I'll link to this in the show notes. For example, in episode 17 about Greg Braden, I said that often about the GOES data, that it would be linked in the show notes. Whenever I say this, the links are at the top of the page in a bulleted list entitled Additional Materials. I don't embed them as links in the transcript because I assume that people are going to read from the top of the page first and that few people actually read transcripts. So that's where they are. It's time for the puzzler, where each episode I ask a critically thinking-based question, or I attempt to anyway, that's loosely based on the material discussed in the main segment. This week, the main segment, hopefully you remember, was on a 3,600-year orbiting planet. The puzzler deals with a more straightforward orbital dynamics question. The first part I already did for you if you paid attention. 
if an object were on a 3,600-year orbit around the Sun, what would its semi-major axis be? Second, if the closest approach to the Sun were Earth, then what would its farthest distance be? And finally, if its closest approach were Earth, about how much time would it spend inside the orbit of Jupiter? Please show your math in order for full credit. Try to figure out the answer and send it into puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I will discuss it during the March 1st episode. Now, I'm also going to start a sort of new thing related to the puzzler. If you have suggestions for puzzler topics, please feel free to send them in. You know, if they're good, decent, halfway decent, or just a vague idea please send them in. I will try to announce what the next Puzzler show topic will be about so that you can think about possible ideas. So the March 1st episode is going to be on magnetic pole shifts. If you have ideas for a good Puzzler question, please send that in to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. In terms of announcements, sorry for the lateness of this episode coming out. It turned out that my throat got worse rather than better after the last episode until I finally got to see the doctor who prescribed antibiotics. Getting slowly better now. My voice wasn't quite as bad as my mom's, and my mom really couldn't talk at all, or at least that's what she told me quite eloquently when I called on Thursday. But my voice wasn't really that recordable. And I didn't want the bacteria nor the viri to go from my throat into the microphone to be recorded and transmitted to you all through the MP3 and your speakers and headphones, and for you to get sick as well. Because I'm pretty sure that I was told sometime by someone that that's how it works. That wraps up this topic for the 23rd edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast, brought to you by Big Pharma, taking over the world one person at a time. <clears throat> Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, Send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net or leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. I read every email and I appreciate the feedback. If you have any suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. If you like this podcast, please write a review, rate it on iTunes, and tell your friends, family, acquaintances, office people, and everyone else.